This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast. And this is where we really are learning to invest by following the best investors in the world. Um, and I got to say, you know, it's really down to Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett, I think is really yeah. pretty much what it comes down to. And in particular, it comes down to a few principles that these two guys have, have uh, been putting forward as their investing practice for the last 50 or 60 years. So the things we're going to be talking about here are anything but a secret. They're not a secret. <laughs> People have been writing about them, trying to copy them, you know, for their investing careers. And there are uh, actually a reasonable number of people who have succeeded in copying them, but very, very few of them are professional fund managers. The people who are successful at copying Buffett have become big fans and are typically individual investors who don't have to deal with the pressures of being a, a professional investor who has to make, you know, quarterly progress against his index. Yeah, yeah. And this is a, it's a huge fatal flaw of being a professional um, and very unacknowledged by academics. They don't, they don't understand that there's this enormous pressure on, on professional investors to do very well on a very short-term basis all the time. And even though many of them would love to invest like Warren Buffett and perhaps even do so in their private investing, they can't do that as a as a uh, professional, they'll, the money will disappear and it'll go away. Yeah, it's something that I never knew about until we started talking about these uh, incentives and pressures on fund managers. And now that I'm aware of it, I see this stuff, this like quarterly focus in the market all the time, not just quarterly, weekly, monthly, daily focus. Right. I mean, just the thing I just was noticing, I was reading the Wall Street Journal and what the Wall Street Journal does online in their articles is where it says a company name, like any company that's mentioned in any articles, they have an automatic little uh, little thing that comes up that gives the current stock price right. and it's change and it has like a red arrow or, or a green arrow. Right. To show if it's gone up or down. And I was noticing that the other day and going like, what the heck is the point of that? <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, I guess for some people that's useful, but God, do I really want that in every article that I'm reading? Like, cause it immediately creates a bias, right? It's, if it's a, right. if it's a red arrow going down, it immediately is like, Oh, what happened to Apple? Oh my goodness. <laughs> and then, you know, you check back at the article five minutes later and it's green. Cause it just went up again. It's like, Oh, what happened to Apple? Oh. I mean, it's just ridiculous. All these short term biases. It's just in everything with, with money and financial stuff. But honey, I think it's it's unacknowledged in academia and in the professional class. And I don't even believe that Buffett and Munger have ever been real specific about the reason why professionals 
operate, as Munger says, like witch doctors, right? I mean, it, following following uh, our just strange formulas, which turn out to be based on false uh, false assumptions, and and so here is something you basically taught me. I've been investing for what since nineteen eighty, so. That's whatever time that is, long time. And <laughs> 40, it, 40 I always have known, I've been taught and have seen in my own investing uh, career and experiences that what they do public with public fund managers is sometimes so bizarre and it's, it appears irrational. You know, why would somebody unload something so obviously worth a lot, uh, you know, down the road? And and so I just assume, oh, well, they're just acting emotionally and they're they're afraid, they're full of fear. So I bought into Buffett's idea that, you know, we we're, we buy fear, we sell greed. You know, we basically do the opposite of what's going on out in the market uh, at Wall Street. And, uh, and you were the first person ever, ever. I've never seen anyone write about it since. I've never seen it in any television programs following the market. Nothing. Never. Not from Buckman, not from Munger, not from anyone. You were the first person that basically identified that professionals are actually acting rationally. They're acting rationally within the confines of what's good for them in their career. They have learned their lessons about trying to do what Warren Buffett does while managing money that comes from pension fund managers and family offices that are going to yank that money the moment you don't perform well, uh, by definition, with your peer group. And that is not out there anywhere. It's an astonishing, uh, and, and that when you came up with it, it was like, I, I heard it, but I didn't really hear it. And then you said it again. And then I was like, wow, what you just said is absolutely true. And honestly, it's, needed to be in the in the education. I mean, you need to understand why otherwise completely rational people would do these things, right? Well, these are super smart people. They they're the smartest people we know, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. come on. They totally. they got top of their class in high school, top of their class in college, top of their class in business school, all Ivy League, everything went to Goldman Sachs. These are the last thing these people are is irrational. Right? Exactly. And and, and yet they're acting as if they're irrational, as if they're full of fear, as if all of these emotions are overwhelming their common sense. And while I'm sure that happens occasionally on the margin, I'd say it doesn't happen most of the time. Most of the time, the actions of fund managers are extremely rational, but not rational in the sense of great long-term results. Rational in the sense of protecting your job. Yeah, no, it's it's a really interesting problem and I'm so glad it came out in our conversations because I still find it fascinating to this day this dichotomy that professional money managers have to deal with who want to be long-term right there's a lot that don't care about long-term stuff but if you want to be a long-term oriented uh, fund manager you have to live in these two worlds of very very multiple year long-term and short-term quarterly and yearly returns for your own investors. And it's a really tough problem. And one that actually I'm working on, like I find it fascinating from a scholarly perspective. And I'm, I've been working and giving presentations actually to investors about how to deal with this problem because it's tough. And, and, and I think 
not to get too crazy about it. Let me tell you. Buffett wrote this amazing op-ed, which I've probably talked about on the podcast already, in June of last year in the Wall Street Journal with Jamie Dimon, who is the head of J.P. Morgan Chase. And he, uh, he and Jamie Dimon, I think, are like buds. And Bezos, he... Jamie Dimon and Jeff Bezos are like buds who are starting this healthcare company, which is private, and they all like enjoy working together. So Buffett and Dimon wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal in June last year of 2017. No, last year? 2017, I think. 2018? Unclear. June of one of those years. And it's about the short-termism in the markets. That's the headline of the article. So what they argue is that The short-term viewpoint in our markets, the quarterly earnings estimates that come out where people in companies will say, we think we're going to hit $2.50 in earnings. That's their estimate. And then the reality of the earnings comes out and it's either above their estimate or below their estimate or it hits their estimate. And the market responds to whichever one of those things is. Buffett thinks that that is the dumbest thing he's ever heard of. And so does Jamie Dimon. And so does a whole collection of CEOs who um, are in some sort of business group that like co-sign this article. And I mean, it's just obvious. Yes, this is a waste of all of our time and it makes the market go up and down. So he, of course, being Buffett genius, connects it to the larger economy as a whole, that this this up and down, this focus on the short term, this volatility that's going on in a short term way actually harms American businesses because it forces them to spend time on this stuff that does not matter to long term value and success in the company. So he thinks we should just do away with quarterly earnings estimates. Now, let me note that it's estimates because there were a lot of comments saying that he was talking about quarterly earnings reports, and that is not what he suggests getting rid of. Although I think he probably would be fine with that as well. But he does call out in that instance this idea that there are too many short-term focuses, foci, foci in our... (laughs) in our markets. And so I think that overall, he understands the problem. But how do you get around it? You know, when you're a fund manager, and you're dealing with real life people who've invested in your fund, and they real life care about what's going on quarter to quarter. So I think the only ways are to really educate them on this stuff. They should just listen to our podcast. That's the answer. Just start to finish. Yeah, that's the answer. Except that I mean, basically, people want as much information as they can get, right? And it's what 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 fails to be perceived, I think, and the reason Buffett's correct and Jamie Dimon is correct, is that when a CEO says, well, well we think, you know, our estimate would be we're going to hit $2.50 a share in earnings this quarter, um, you you almost can't help it as as the CEO. You now have to find that number. You've got to find yeah, it someplace. Exactly. So what went from just like, let me help you out with more information, starts driving exactly. the train, right? It's it's the tail wagging the dog. And that's the, the disgusting problem is that once you start doing that every single quarter, you have to keep making your number every single quarter. And there's just not that many businesses that can run um, or even should... There are almost no businesses should ever run that tightly where you have to get it right in three months down to the penny um, instead of getting it right over the next five Mm -hmm. years. 
Precisely. Right. And that, and that, and again, part of that is just, you know, people trying to get more information, um, and then having that become something that's wagging the dog. And, I think it's and a really good point that the, it was, it was started with good intentions. Uh, just here's more info. Here's what, here's what we're expecting. Hey, just want to get you guys a heads up. Yep. Yep. This is going to be a bad quarter. It's going to be a bad three quarters. You know, I just want to inform you as my owners, here's where mm-hmm. we are, you know, and then, and then the owners all sell. Yeah. And, they're not real owners. <laughs> And then the CEO gets yeah. fired and then the new CEO comes in with the lesson learned and the, the cautionary tale well embedded in his brain. Don't yeah, do that. Precisely. Right. And then it becomes an expected so thing. And if you don't do it, then it's like, what's the matter? What's happening? Well, what just happened? And so what, one of the, one, obviously Jamie Dimon and Warren Buffett all run their own companies and Buffett is famous for letting the CEOs of the companies he owns, Berkshire owns probably 70 some companies that are private companies, lets them run those businesses with almost no interference mm-hmm. whatsoever. And um, and chooses businesses to buy that have people running them that he can trust. And, um, and so he doesn't micromanage in any way, shape or form. He lets these people run their businesses for the long term. And I, I think that's how he'd like to see the businesses run in the public markets. But the problem is the public markets are full of short-term yeah, investors. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. That's what they didn't talk about in that op-ed, that it's not so much yep. the companies doing this thing that is silly. It's They're responding to the pressures of the market itself. And if the market itself didn't care about short-term quarterly earning estimates, then the companies wouldn't have to put them out and nobody would care. And more than that, the market, meaning who? Who is in the market? It's the investors who we were just speaking about who have these issues with responding to their own investors with their own returns. So they want to follow quarterly stuff so that they don't get any quarterly bad news, any, you know, they can get out of a company before something shows up so that then they can give good quarterly earnings or quarterly returns to their own investors. It's this whole chain reaction that I think actually yeah, let me, begins with the investors. Let me just clarify with, just something that you just said yeah, there. Go ahead. That, that this, there's investors It's very investors. hard. It's like the language is very investors. difficult. So let me just kind of get deeper into that. So everybody understands the structure of the public markets is not, is not today like it used to be. Um, back when the public markets were first getting rolling, um, it was individual investors using their own money, um, basically gambling day to day on what's going on out there with these companies. Okay, um, And then that has evolved now to a place where 80, 85 percent of the money invested in the stock market is actually managed money, managed by fund managers who run uh, Pension funds, California Teachers uh, Retirement Fund is one of the largest investors in the world. They have maybe $180 billion invested in the markets. And um, those funds are run by professionals Mm -hmm. who then choose other professionals who will actively manage a portion of that big Mm -hmm. money. So this this is sort of 
um, compiled money from millions of small investors that is then uh, in your 401k, it's in your whatever, you know, if you put it into a mutual fund, it's going into a mutual fund manager. But by and large, most big uh, investors are dealing with professional managers that they have to report to. And that is the nested investors. So you have uh, what what the industry calls fund of fund mm-hmm. managers. These are pension fund managers who are running a fund, pension fund, a California teachers retirement. And then they're picking fund managers who are actually investing the money in individual companies. And that, that's the nested sense of it. And a huge, huge portion of the money invested in the stock market is nested. Yeah. Like that. So it's very confusing because when I say like an investor in the market, what that usually means is a fund manager. And the fund manager then has investors in his or her fund. <laughs> and everyone's called an investor. And it's very confusing. So the way I tend to call them, but it's such a legal thing to say, so nobody gets it, is limited partners because within the structure of a fund, the people investing in a fund are called limited partners. So it makes it more clear, but maybe not. In some funds. Well, yeah, it depends on how it's structured, obviously. Not no, mutual not funds. mutual funds. <laughs> okay, we're now yeah. burying ourselves in our attempt to explain and become clear. We have seriously so people the water invest in investors. How about that? Right. Well, okay, that's probably worse. All right. How about how about professionals put put you know accumulated capital into the hands of other professionals who then invest it. So, and uh, we're going into this right now because it's heart and soul of the problem. And the problem being that if I'm running a pension fund for the California teachers and I have $180 billion under me, I have a tremendous amount of control about where Mm -hmm. that money goes. And if you are a fund manager that wants my money, you better deliver those results to me that I want to see, which are, hey, you have to beat the Mm -hmm. S&P 500 uh, or at least stay with it. Um, every quarter. And if you miss it one quarter, I'm yeah, watching well, you very closely. And by That's the way, it's not just because that guy at the California pension fund is like, oh, this is just how I want it. It's because that guy, if he doesn't hit his quarterly numbers, he's going to get fired at some point. So he's it's a chain of people who don't want to get fired. Right. And, and everybody's acting like, oh, well, you know, everyone's just in it for the long run to make great profits for their clients. Baloney. They're in it for their job. No, they're Let's in it. I, I, I think that. that's a little harsh. They're in it for the long run. I don't think these are like necessarily bad people. It's like they're not consciously doing this, but they need to be in it for the long run and the short term at the same time. Like that's essentially their job. Which is impossible. Which is impossible. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> It's impossible. Those are those are completely contradictory yes. goals. <laughs> so, good luck with that. And therein and, and lies as a result, the problem. There's a problem, and that's why very few fund managers beat the market. And that's why Buffett and Munger look at these the way this whole industry is structured as being completely yeah. crazy. I mean, Buffett or not? It's just it just doesn't make Munger sense. Munger said in his Daily Journal meeting, which we've been talking about. Um, that he made the point that he hardly ever has a transaction. He made that point a couple of times because I think to him, 
the idea of this like getting in and out of something of making choices that would cause you then to like you know sell a company three months later or whatever like the short-term view is just insane he likes to just buy stuff and sit on it for 30 40 50 years and hardly ever have a transaction i thought that was pretty cool it is pretty cool and it's Munger for sure Buffett does a lot, a lot more transactions I mean there's a reason that Munger Buffett is kind of does. the like guy on the sidelines who doesn't really do much at Berkshire Hathaway you know <laughs> I don't think running a big conglomerate is his idea of fun no uh, but it's but Charlie's track record is is very very similar to Buffett's even though he's operated with less purchases by far um, and staying with stuff of course Buffett's classically stays long-term in things. He's been in American Express for 40 years. He's been in uh, Coca-Cola for 30. Um, so these guys don't jump out of stuff that's a really good company. And those companies are characterized by um, a kind of have a business, a business franchise or a business model that compounds money mm-hmm. internally. They're called compounders, as a matter of fact, by some by some people who are looking over these guys' shoulders. And and that the idea is if you can buy into a compounder at a great price, you should never sell it because it, the company itself will grow your money faster than you could grow it if you took it mm-hmm. out and put mm-hmm. it somewhere else. Um, so you, you think about Apple Computer, their recent recent purchase – Apple has been an extraordinary compounder since Jobs came back into it and and revitalized the company. And um, it's compounded money at, at an enormous rate of return. Their return on invested capital, return on capital, return on equity is in the 30% wow. range, which means they're making 30% a year wow. on the money you leave with them. So really, a reasonable question would be, why would I ever want yeah. them to give me my money if... I, because how am I going to go make 30% a year on yeah. it, right? And so the idea is to leave your money with a great compounder. And that's, of course, Berkshire Hathaway is one of the most famous great compounding businesses in history. It's compounded money at 20% a year now since uh, the late 1960s. I mean, the math on that is insane. It's like 10,000 bucks into Berkshire's, I don't even know, 40, 50 million, 100 million. <laughs> it's some insane, yeah. huge yeah. number. And, and the idea is just leave it in there and leave it alone. So right now, Charlie, uh, you have to update me if this is right, but Charlie basically has three or four holdings, which he's had for a long, long time. So he's had Berkshire forever. That's one. He's had Costco for probably 10 mm-hmm. or 15 years. I'm not, not either. sure when he bought it. Yeah. That's two. He's in Lee Lu's fund, Himalaya fund. Um, which is restricted, of course, to very, very wealthy people. Um, and Lee Lu being a phenomenal investor in his own right. And he's been in that for probably, you know, half a decade or more. Um, and there was I one more. I feel like there was he's one in. more, too. I'm going to have to look right back at my notes and see. Yeah, I think there's a fourth one in there. Yeah, somewhere. I mean, what he. Um, oh, of oh Daily Journal, <laughs> of course. Yeah, which is Charlie's company. Oh, you mean the, the company <laughs> that he was speaking at? Yeah, that one. <laughs> It's so easily overlooked, though, because he never Uh, uh, talks about it. Right. And uh, and for 
for all kinds of reasons, right? But those are the four businesses that Charlie's family owns. And yeah. he said, I'm very comfortable with them. And and he hasn't yeah, bought a stock no for years. So, uh, and then he hasn't bought a stock for Daily Journal. Daily Journal has, a, I don't know, a hundred some billion dollars, uh, sorry, a hundred million dollars in stock investing on its own using its own uh, capital as a company. And it owns, you know, Bank of America and a few other things, but also very, very few stock purchases. Just leave them alone when you get them, stick with them, and things will come out right in the end. And you know what? We're talking about this like it's uh, something that we should all do. And certainly we should all aspire to it. And I'm here to tell you as an investor for, you know, 37 years or whatever, this is really hard to do. When a company starts dropping like a brick, it's really hard not to sell it and move out of the way of this interim disaster. Um, but those guys don't. They don't sell. It's, yeah. it's tough. I mean, but they don't. one thing that we ended last podcast talking about are mistakes of omission and how to be, how to know what to do at the right time to do it. And it's something I'm really struggling with. I, I don't, I, maybe, maybe it's through experience. Well, I mean, take a look at, I mean, what we, we beat up Chipotle Grill on this <laughs> podcast for a million times, but beat up in the sense that we talk about it a lot. And it has turned out actually to have done quite well. One of the few things mm -hmm. we actually bought recently. And um, and the price from where we started going into it around 300, 280, price got down as low as 250. And then currently it's at over $600 mm -hmm. a share. And I effectively closed out my investment at, at around $490 a share, taking an enormous rate of return for one year, right? Like a 80% yeah. yeah. return with 25% of the portfolio invested in it. So I'm, I, you know, I'm walking our talk, right? We're, we're going deep when we go. So we're very patient, very patient, very patient, and then get very aggressive. Or as Charlie says, you know, what does he say? You, you pounce <laughs> on them with vigor, I think is what he says. So that's all well and good, but I sold out around 500. And I did that because that's where the stock price started reaching what I mm -hmm. thought was intrinsic value, right? And I did it knowing full well that my view of intrinsic value is relatively conservative and that this stock would probably do what it's done in the past, which is to exceed intrinsic value, in my view, and continue to rise far beyond it. And that is certainly what's happening. And I'm sort of a little bit kicking myself that I didn't follow Charlie's instructions to the letter and just leave it alone. It's a great company. Why in the heck am I selling it? Well, let I don't me have ask you about that. The money. So, why did I it sell it? It reached what you thought. By the way, was the intrinsic value figured out from the margin of safety calculation? Yeah, I mean, I find it pretty much the same when I do the ten cap evaluation and payback time. They're all they're all hitting at a purchase price. You know, jump in on it at around yeah. two hundred to two fifty. You know, and uh, margin of safety is around three hundred. And so it's those would indicate a, a value of five hundred okay. to six hundred dollars so a share. The three uh, pricing evaluation from our book, like those, that's kind of, and then you figure out right. where you would buy it at, and yep. then, uh, and then what the natural value is that would give you a return. Okay, just confirming. Um, right, and so I mean, by the way, as a way of an exercise, if you want to go back and take a look at the data that we were looking at in late 2017, 
um, you could kind of try to get an idea of what those things are worth based on that and see if you come out close. Wait, what are you talking about? To where we came out. I mean, just go, people who are listening to the podcast right now, if they want to do a little homework, could take a look, <clears throat> take a look at Chipotle. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. In 2017 and 2018, and kind of just see what was happening on their numbers and, mm-hmm. and the direction of the business, and see where they mm-hmm. come out yeah. for intrinsic value. Knowing that we can. But so out here's at what I want to ask you about. So you figured out intrinsic value, it got to intrinsic value. But the other thing you've always said to me is you only sell you only sell if the story has changed. So had the story changed for you at that point? Well, two times. I, I said you always you only sell when the story's changed or you're <laughs> well, there's three times. When the story's <laughs> when the story's changed, then then mm-hmm. it's time time to exit. Even if it hasn't gotten to um, intrinsic value. It's like but, yeah. The story's changing, you're right, no longer. Even into if it, it hasn't, obviously something dramatically changed in your business yeah. and you shouldn't own it anymore, right? So um, that's one way. The, the the second is it gets above intrinsic value at or above intrinsic value. Um, it's reasonable to pull the trigger, particularly and exit, particularly if um, taxation isn't a big issue, and if um, you have another place to put the money that you would have a lot more velocity. Oh, so of your if you have another, this is particularly important when you're starting started. It's really important when you're getting started and don't have a lot of money that you keep the velocity high, right? So what works for a billionaire with $180 billion is it will also work for you, but what might work better is to follow what that billionaire did when they were first starting out, which in Buffett's case was to Mm -hmm. sell everything when it got to intrinsic value. And Buffett found intrinsic value to be a very conservative number. Um, and so he exited tons of companies and you can read his early letters back in the sixties, uh, where he had to explain why he got out of something mm. that just kept going up. Right. And his, his argument was, well, we, we thought, you know, it had reached real value and if people are going to pay more for it than it's worth that I can't be responsible for that. And we had another place to mm. put the money. So mm. we put it there and you can't fault his results. In those days he was knocking out between 35 and wow. 50% a year. Which was astonishing. By buying companies who were severely undervalued and then selling them when they got to intrinsic value, he kept that rate of return high. And it's only later when they had a lot more money that they started shifting into a much more mm-hmm. long-term hold. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I mean, think about where Buffett learned. He learned from Ben Graham, who was operating during the Depression where st- there, you couldn't count on stocks going up for the long run because they'd been pulverized. And then they went up again in the early 30s and they crashed back down again. And then they went up again and they crashed back down again in the 40s. And so people became very fearful of stocks and certainly didn't think that you could just leave your money in one and, oh, it would just hmm. do great. That that wasn't the case You had back to hit then. it. You, you, yeah. Graham, move the money, yeah. move yeah. the money, move the money, move the money. And it was only in the 60s where Buffett and Munger got together and said, look, the better way to do this is to find really wonderful businesses that have big moats and are super big compounders and let them compound it. And yeah, you're going to go through some 50% drops in the stock market because of the market becoming fearful and irrational in the long run, but you've got to stay with it. And at the end of the day, 
that's going to make you your highest returns. And I mean, think about it. What a great philosophy for a company that can't get out anyway, right? You can't, you just can't exit. If you own 10% of Coca-Cola, what are you going to do? Yeah. You can't unload. Right. You crash the stock. So isn't that an um, interesting contrast to how we started here talking about Munger never having a transaction compared to Graham constantly moving in and out of probably a hundred different companies at a given time. You know, he had big portfolios compared to Munger who has four. Again, they're just like such opposites to each other and yet connected like same philosophy. Dramatically opposite in this, in, but, um, similar in arriving at a decision about how to, Hmm. how to value a business. And so what, what Munger and Buffett brought to Graham's game was the idea that some businesses are vastly superior to other businesses and, and they're very rarely going to go on sale. And so rather than being very active in the market, like Graham was, they decided that it was better to be very inactive in the market, wait patiently in cash, as we've seen Munger do now for, uh, I've been watching him in at least four years now that he hasn't moved any money into the market. Um, and Buffett has been very leery of moving in money in for the last two years. So they're extremely patient waiting for one of these compounders to go on sale. And when they do, they're going to jump in with billions of dollars and and try to buy as much of it as they possibly can. And that has turned out to be some, here's the beauty of it for us. That's something we can do as small individual investors. Nobody's telling us we got to be dancing in and out of the market. Something we can do is, is we have to understand every business. Hmm. Yeah, we can wait. We can sit there and wait. And even better, we can wait until those guys start buying something. And we can yeah. copy them. <laughs> Which, by the way, is the simplest way to get rich I ever heard of in my life. And had you copied, done this, have you have you done this from the middle 1970s until the middle 2000s, UNLV researchers found that you would have made, I don't know, 18 to 20% compounded just copying yeah, crazy yeah isn't that crazy you don't have to do all this work you don't have to struggle you don't have to worry that i'm not smart enough you just copy a great investor who invests rarely and when he does pull the trigger then do your homework and if you can understand that business then well you we barely it. talked about mistakes Done. of omission at all even though I don't know how to be super decisive. We should talk about that. But we also, and this is what you were just saying, copying Buffett. Buffett just came out with his Berkshire Hathaway letter, and we haven't talked about that either. So many things. Oh, my gosh. We got so much to cover, you guys. All right. We're going we're gonna to leave you alone here <laughs> for another week. <laughs> then we're going to be back and climb on these so other go check topics, out the Berkshire so letter fun. if you haven't read it already. It's shorter this year. It's shorter yeah, do your homework. than other years, Prepare for which next we week. will discuss. And also, yeah, remember it's... that Jacob Taylor's coming on the show in four weeks. He's coming on the April 9th show to talk about his book, The Rebel Allocator, which Charlie Munger personally called him about to make comments on. And there's an article in the Wall Street Journal about that, which is pretty funny. 
Um, so we got so lucky to get Jake on our show and chat about Charlie and his book and how to put capital in the right places. And I think it's going to be fascinating. So get his book. It's really it's a fun re- book. It's yeah. really a fun book. It's really, a, yeah, you, you have right. fun reading it. So go get it and prepare yourself. So read the Berkshire letter, read Rebel Allocator and do your homework. All right. Thanks, everybody. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Time to go play. See ya. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, show notes, and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.